Welcome to Professional Planner's new Ethics and Professionalism podcast series. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and editor of Professional Planner magazine. In this new series, we will engage an ethics expert and a practitioner to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a culmination of factors, including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations, with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's new Code of Ethics. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Alan Gray, the Contrarian Investment Manager. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Go to alangray.com.au to find out more. Our guests today are Peter Singer and Marissa Broom. Peter is an Australian-born moral philosopher. Peter is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and a Laureate Professor at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. He specialises in applied ethics and approaches ethical issues from a secular, utilitarian perspective. He is possibly best known for his book Animal Liberation, published in 1975, in which he argues in favour of veganism and his essay Famine, Affluence and Morality, in which he argues in favour of donating to help global poor. Peter has spent some time looking at FASIA's new code of ethics and we are privileged to have him here today and to be part of this series. Marissa Broom is our second guest and probably best known to many of our listeners. She is a CFP and she is owner and principal of wealthadvice.com.au. Marissa has worked in financial services for over 30 years, initially in funds management and for more than 20 years as a financial planner. Marissa is also the current chair of the Financial Planning Association. Um, look, welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. We'll just dive straight in. And, and, and for you, Peter, I know We've engaged you as part of our best practice forum and you've done a little bit of work looking at the FASIA code of ethics and, and you've been a bit of exposed to, I suppose, financial advisors in our industry for a little while now or you've, you've, you've delved into um, to some of these issues. What's your just top level takeaway on how far is this industry along on its journey to professionalism and ethics? Well, I think the industry has clearly um, made a start in that direction. Uh, but it still has some way to go, as you would expect. I think uh, uh, it, it may be Australia's newest profession, so it's still developing those standards and learning to live with them and adjusting the business model of financial advising to becoming a profession. Uh, yeah, so it's not, it's not done yet, um, but it's on the way. And um, so you, during the Best Practice Forum, you talked about three ethical frameworks that we all, perhaps um, the lens through which we see the world. Can you just uh, describe that a little bit and, and how that works? Certainly. The three frameworks uh, that I think are most widely used and discussed are uh, firstly a, a rule-based ethic, an ethic of rules, or sometimes they call a list of duties or and the FASIA code, they're referred to as standards. So there are certain things, you know, the most familiar, of course, would be the Ten Commandments. That is, there are, there are certain things that you must not do. Um, and on that basis, as long as you don't violate any of those rules, 
you've lived ethically. A second, a rather different uh, approach to ethics is an ethics of values, uh, where what you're trying to do is to promote certain values. Sometimes uh, this view is called consequentialism because essentially you're judging actions to be right or wrong in terms of their consequences. We're all affected. And the best known version of consequentialism is utilitarianism, uh, associated with the English philosopher at the end of the 18th and early 19th century, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. Utilitarianism says that the right action is the one which will produce the greatest possible surplus of happiness over suffering or misery. So it's uh, looking at consequences in terms of, of well-being, essentially. Um, the third example is, is virtue ethics, which can be traced back to Aristotle, to the idea that to live ethically, you should have a character that embodies a set of virtues, and then to live ethically will be simply to have those virtues and to act on them in appropriate circumstances. Yeah, great. And, and um, having had a look at the Fascia Code of Ethics, um, Kind of through what lens do you think um, the, the people responsible for writing the code viewed ethics and, um, and uh, do you have any comment on specifically, maybe we can just think specifically about the code now, what were some of your takeaways from, um, from the code of ethics? Sure. Well, the code, I think, has all of these views in some way in it. So it starts out with a set of values like trustworthiness, competence, honesty, fairness, diligence. Um, and they could also be seen as, as virtues. They're the kinds of things that somebody of good character would have in the financial advising area. But um, the largest part of the code is the standards, 12 standards, which are effectively rules. Um, and uh, they're, I think, what most people are going to look at and say, "Can I? am I complying with, with these standards or rules? Uh, and as with any ethic of rules, you can ask, uh, are the rules clear? Do they cover all the cases uh, unambiguously? Um, and could they ever come into conflict? And if they do come into conflict, what should we do? And that's where some of the issues and problems, I think, with the code might arise. Yeah. Um, look, so we're going to get into in a minute um, three scenarios that have actually been generated by our readers and our listeners. But I just, just wanted to pick up on one thing. It, it, um, during the, your keynote at the Best Practice Forum, you mentioned that, um, you know, obviously there's a few interesting parts of the Code of Ethics that you, um, you know, picked up on. One was this, I suppose, tension between um, the, the financial interests of a client and their broader interests. Um, could you just explain that a little bit? Yes, that's right. So, so the Code specifies that the advisor must act in the client's best interests, and that's typical of being a professional, of course. Um, but although at one stage uh, there's a suggestion that by best interests that means financial interests, that's actually a statement in the uh, explanatory statement uh, on the second standard, um, but elsewhere there are references to the client's broader long-term interests. Um, and so that leaves some, I guess, lack of clarity as to to what extent should you consider non-financial interests. And examples might be um, the interest of promoting harmony within the family, uh, the interest of well-being of the client's children, 
um, who are not directly your client and therefore the standards say you don't have a direct duty to only act in their interests, but if they're part of your client's broader interest, then you do. So that's uh, that's an issue that I guess has some flexibility into it, some, some questions of judgment that need to be made in, in deciding how to compare strictly financial interests with broader long-term interests. I'm really interested in that point, Peter, because I think that is something that um, the Code of Ethics and the explanatory statement are very much in conflict in. I think fundamentally financial planners have this amazing relationship of trust with their clients and they are in a situation where they do want to operate in the client's best interest, but they do have those um, external obligations. And I think that is where a financial planner could well find themselves in conflict because they actually don't quite know where their loyalties lie. And it actually has also been increasing in our profession that many financial planners operate across a family group. They actually might um, have all three or four generations of a family as their clients. So where does the best interest lie first? And I think it's really interesting to see rules on a piece of paper, a code monitoring body that's going to give a value judgment about how you are um, obliged to follow the rules, and then that uh, sense of loyalty and that relationship you have with your client. I think it's fraught for many financial planners about where they are actually doing the right thing. I'm sure it is, and I wonder if at least in some cases where families are not completely harmonious, um, there isn't uh, a conflict of interest for the financial planner if uh, she or he does have as clients um, all generations of the family, uh, because you know that's a difficult situation. I think that the code is pretty strict that says you should not act where there is a conflict of interest. Um, but uh, yes, if there's an interest in the younger generations in uh, maximising their inheritance, and there's an interest in the older generations in uh, having certain things that they want right now that that might be expensive, and maybe things like aged care as well. Um, how exactly does that does that work? I I think that uh, there is very clear in the FASEA Code of Ethics that we need to avoid conflicts of interest. Is there a difference between avoiding and managing, or is it a complete avoidance? Um, and I think that's also a fine line. I mean, you can identify a conflict of interest, you can manage it and work within the parameters in some circumstances. And I don't know how you put a value judgment over that. And I'd love to see, well, love to hear your perspective on that. Yes, the, the standards of the code are, are, seem to be pretty strict in terms of saying you must not act when you are in a conflict of interest. Um, and that could certainly pose problems because you do have situations where um, you, know, you, you want to keep acting and it may actually be better for all parties if you do keep acting, um, even though there may be some conflict of interest. And sort of some financial planners uh, have said, look, uh, if you disclose the potential for the conflict of interest to the clients and they accept it, then that's okay. Um, the code, again, is, is explicit in saying disclosing a conflict of interest is, is not enough to make it okay. Um, perhaps the, the way that you could argue that sometimes in these situations it is okay to go ahead is this reference to the broader interest of the client because for most, most clients would agree that their broader interests include the well-being of their family. Um, so at least in those sorts of situations, you could say, well, I should indeed consider the well-being of your family and not only yourself. And that means that it isn't really a conflict of interest because they're, they're, they're all together. But 
But you do need to be very careful in that. I mean, that could easily cover too much, that kind of way of looking at it, um, where families are not so harmonious. And we're absolutely going to road test a couple of these, uh, you know, um, you know, theories uh, within the scenarios that we uh, run through in a moment. Just before you do, we do, I just wanted to pick up on one um, other little thing uh, that you did pick up uh, in the work you did with the FASIA Code of Ethics, uh, the contrast between uh, the code specifically relating to product, but it doesn't go far enough uh, or as far as to say that advisors indeed should be independent. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and, and, and how you were left with, I sp- suppose, this bit of a, a tension uh, in the code relating to um, uh, the need to be um, kind of independent but, but also not forcing um, independent perhaps on, on the industry? Yes. So the code is, is clear um, that, and I think this is now generally accepted, that uh, commissions or volume bonuses for steering your client's investments into uh, a product that your employer operates are at. You, you can't do that. But on the other hand, you can still be employed by a company that does have investment products. And uh, as long as you don't get those volume bonuses or commissions, the code seems to regard it as acceptable to put your clients into those products. Cons- of course, under the rubric that this is in the best interest of your client. But might your judgment of what is in the best interest of your client be swayed by the fact that even in the absence of a commission or volume bonus, the salary that you will be getting, which you know presumably is looked at each year with a view to increasing it, um, might be affected by whether you have or have not put your clients into products owned by the company. Uh, and and if there's a sort of like a fine judgment as to is this really in the client's interest or not, um, can you be truly objective in making that call when your future remuneration may depend on it? Yeah, great. And, and look, that'll come out in the scenario. Is any just no, no, top-level thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I think the problem here is that we are licensed about giving advice on a financial product but what we do is actually give advice to people about strategy and about how to give them uh, a better life, um, both financial well-being and also emotional well-being, because we're a partner in their corner. So uh, I think there's actually a conflict with the, with the broader legislation that, about how we're actually licensed to operate that is very difficult to decipher when you've got a code of ethics sitting over the top of it. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenario to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Alan Gray take a contrarian investment approach, apply it consistently and invest for the long term. After all, you can't invest the same way as everyone else and expect a different result. Find out more at alangray.com.au. 
first one is entitled Divorcing Clients, and I'll just uh, read it through quickly and I'll ask Marissa to uh, perhaps give her uh, frontline view and then uh, let's, uh, let's then go to, to, to Peter for a, a, a bit of a, a pricey as, as well. Um, but for many years, I've been advising a high net worth couple. Now they have told me that they are divorcing. They, see, uh, they, came, to me to, um, they came to see me together to tell me this news and they still appear to be on amicable terms. I believe that I could advise them how to split their assets when reaching a property settlement much more tax effectively than a lawyer could. In addition, I'm a sole practitioner and obviously I would like to keep them both as clients. Um, they have both said that they would be happy for me to continue to advise them jointly. Can I do this without being involved in a conflict of interest? Uh, Marissa, your thoughts? I think there is no doubt as a financial planner, we're probably better placed than many to come up with a financial settlement for our clients. We know them, we know the history of the investments, we know the assets, we know their income earning potential. Uh, that doesn't actually mean that it's right to do that. Um, I've certainly seen many financial settlements that have come to me, uh, drawn up by lawyers, and when you dig a bit deeper, you know that a lot of the issues haven't been addressed. And even though a client may start um, being very amicable when they come to see you or they may be uh, great mates and they want to keep it all amicable, money does some funny things to people and it's not always amicable all the way through the end. Um, I'm very lucky in my practice I haven't had to deal with this very often, but I was also guided very early on to have a policy around this in my practice. So we have a very clear policy that we don't deal with both parties. For a long time we dealt with the first one that came to us. Um, we certainly have a very uh, clear policy about how we provide information to both parties, but we don't deal with either of them now. And um, we have a network of similar sort of financial planners we can refer them out to. They may come back, but initially we don't feel that we can handle it. Okay, great. And and Peter, um, thoughts on that? But also there was a lot of um, differing thoughts on the floors, both of Sydney and in particular Melbourne. So um, feel free to kind of bring in those uh those different views as well. But uh, what are your, your thoughts top line on, on, on Marissa? Yes, I, I think what Marissa has said is certainly a, a, a clean and clear way of handling this situation and of avoiding possible conflicts and messy situations that you could get into. Um, there was some discussion uh, on the floor and I think probably the majority of the comments, uh, both in Sydney and Melbourne, took a line somewhat similar to Marissa's that you shouldn't advise both of them. But there were also some dissenters. Uh, there were some who were saying, well, um, it is in their best interests to reach an amicable agreement, not to have to involve lawyers and go to court. Clearly, that's something that nobody would really want to do if they can avoid it. Um, and so given this view of what's in the client's broader interests um, and not simply their narrow financial interests, uh, that it might be acceptable to continue to, to have them both. Um, I, I also suggested another possibility, which would be to say you can only continue to advise one of them, um, but you would try to do so in a way that was objective and fair because it was in each of their interests to avoid going to court. And if the, the one you were advising wished to share the proposals with the, uh, the partner, the, the partner who was, they were separating from, uh, they could do that and, you know, that might be a way in which you gain some of the effects of advising both of them, although you're strictly not advising the other one and so there isn't a conflict of interest. So so that was the policy we did follow. We did for a, a while um, advise one, whoever came to us first and not the other, uh, and then we allowed them to share that information because we had to not breach privacy and we also, um, you know, over time worked out that was pretty fraught. So we're quite happy to prepare documents for other people to act on. 
uh, prepare and provide information to people equally, and that's the way our policy works. I see. So you thought that it did lead to problems if you even kept one of them on? Only because uh, down the journey of separation, it might start off friendly, but I'm yet to see one that's finished in the same friendly. It might actually get back to being friendly three or four years down the track, but there is actually always a nasty period in the middle. And I think hindsight um, is a great thing, but you don't have it when you're dealing with the client. You don't want to be stuck in the middle of that. You could actually end up burning both relationships. Right. Well, you certainly have more experience in handling that situation than I do. Yeah. And any comment on on that line about um, I believe I could advise them better than a lawyer could? Is that that was brought up um, during the discussion? That was that, that was that was questioned during the floor discussion. That's right. That basically, it, I think somebody thought that it looked like a bit of overconfidence there. Um, that uh, you know, and again, it, it may be in some cases that they'll save money by continuing to be advised by the financial planner rather than the lawyer. But, but yeah, there are particular particular expertise that tax lawyers have perhaps that uh, financial planners don't necessarily have. Yeah, great. Um, okay, let's push on to the next one. This one's entitled Remuneration and Conflict of Interest. Um, I'm an employed, uh, I, I am employed by a financial advice business owned by an institution. After some time, I realised that we were being encouraged to use investment products that were in the best interest of the institution, although the fact that investments in these products benefited the institution was not disclosed to us. Um, the direction given by the business was that it was the best solution for the client, but I'm less sure about that. I do not receive any bonus or commission for the investments but I can't help but feeling that if my clients uh, do not invest in these products, my future prospects with the business may be affected. Would it be wrong for me to advise my clients to invest in what the business tells me is the best product for the client? Marissa? The best interest duty is not something that is just part of the CEO Code of Ethics. We've had the best interest duty for many years now. Your obligation, first and foremost, is to do the right thing by your client. And I know this is a really difficult one because we're in a state of flux in our profession at the moment. We've got lots of people who have uncertain employment arrangements in place and they are under a lot of pressure to make sure they're doing the right thing by their clients and by their employers. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to have the client in the, in the box seat and you've got to make sure you're doing the right thing by them. I mean, there are ways and means to investigate whether you are right, whether your instinct that there is something wrong with the product, it's not the right thing for the client is to go and do your own research. Actually go away and make sure that you really do understand the product. Go to your employer, ask them about all the information, ask them where the um, conflicts might be within themselves or where the relationships are. Make sure you really understand it. There are ways that you can investigate to satisfy yourself. But at the end of the day, if it's the wrong product for the client or the wrong strategy even for the client, you really have to make sure that the client's best interests are looked after. There's no, I I don't see that there's any grey area here. How do we do, Peter? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably good. That that's that's the right the right advice to give to people. Um, but it is, as was said again from the floor, it can be a really difficult situation um, because obviously, you know, your your employment, your livelihood is is at stake in in this situation. And so, can you really be fully objective in assessing whether the product is the right product? And and in the end, I'm inclined to think that. The pressure is one that it would be better to avoid. And in terms of what I said right at the beginning when you asked me you know, how financial planners are going in terms of becoming a profession, uh, whether the next step and the step to really make them uh, fully professional is to say that you can't be employed by a company that has an interest in 
investment products. So essentially move towards fully independent uh, financial planners that uh, are not going to be put in this somewhat difficult situation of trying to judge for themselves whether a product is the right one for their client when they do have some sort of financial stake, even if not a direct commission or bonus, in uh, the client investing in that product. Yeah, great. Probably on the, because I've been very harsh on this because it's something that is core to, to what I do, but um, there is a lot of comfort for a lot of clients to go to an organisation where both the advice and the product are linked because they feel that there's a large organisation, there's a safety net in place. And so when you are going away and doing your research about the product, maybe you need to take some of that into account. I don't want to just say blanketly that um, vertical integration is wrong because I don't necessarily believe that's the case. And vertical integration is not necessarily about the size of the organisation but the relationships between the products and the services that are provided. So there are ways and means that you can actually go and do some research to satisfy yourself that you're doing the right thing by the client but also that you're proud about what you're doing and the advice you're providing. Yeah, great. Look, uh, so the final one, I've got a bit of a curly one for you, Marissa. Um, This one's entitled uh, Drawing a Line Between between Professional and Personal Advice, Um, and I'll just uh, kick off with it now. Um, I have a client called George who has an asset base sufficient to ensure him a comfortable retirement, but not much more than that. Uh, He's been cashing out some significant assets recently, telling me that there, there is somebody in his family in some trouble who needs some money. Um, quite by accident and without um, in any way seeking the information, I've learned that he has a drug-dependent grandson and I'm fairly sure that this is where the money is going. Uh, selling assets would obviously not be in George's um, financial interests and when um, he next asks me about something, I would tell him that. Um, but should I also tell him that I've, what I've learned and express my view that facilitating the grandson's addiction is not going to do the grandson any good either? What is my brief? I'm conflicted between the brief um, that is um, George's best interest to have the discussion and the belief that how he chooses to spend his money is none of my business. If the client asks for an opinion, um, that is an entry. If, however, it isn't asked for and if he has uh, not chosen to tell me about his grandson's problem, should I inform him about what I've heard? Um, I am interested in the delineation between personal and professional ethics. As advisors, we have a very close relationship with clients. Does this blur the boundary between the personal and the professional? Marissa. So I do multi-generational advice. That's the primary part of my business. Um, I haven't had this specific scenario, but I have had one generation want to support the other generation. Uh, It's quite easy in that situation because they're all clients and we often will meet as a family. We won't meet one-on-one. So that's a lot easier for us to deal with. Um, But there is a, you know, a challenge because you've got to um, protect the privacy of George, the client. Uh, You've got to protect and and, um, value that relationship. Um, But you've also got to make sure that you're uh, explaining to him the implications of every time he makes a withdrawal. So if he's actually uh, making a withdrawal or cashing out assets in his own right, are you going through a new meeting with him? Are you talking through the implications? It doesn't matter if he's actually going and blowing it on lots of fancy cars or actually supporting his son's drug habit. Have you actually gone through the conversation about what is he going to do with that money and is there other ways and means in which we can do it? But in the same way, you should also talk about the implications of cashing out that money. Um, I'd hate to think that someone was conflicted about how they... um, 
spoke to the client based on the way they were remunerated. This is something that came to me afterwards, is that a lot of advisors still charge a percentage of funds under advice. I'd hate to think that their level of advice and service they're giving is actually lesser because they're getting paid less because that's the way they charge. That's a, an old charging and pricing model and you should probably revisit that. But that's another story in itself. Um, I, I don't think we, by asking questions about where the money's going, is actually casting a personal opinion. Uh, I think it's actually just being concerned about the client's wellbeing, not just financial but other wellbeing issues. And if the client then, because your relationship's so strong, wants to share the scenario, maybe then you can offer some other support around it. Yeah, great. Thanks, Marissa. And, and Peter, any comments on that? Yeah, um, I think that's good. And I think you know what you need to stress here is that you should give the client an opportunity to talk to you about it. That is, that um, try to make the client aware that uh, if there's something that uh, he or she wants to discuss, you're there to discuss it. It doesn't have to be just about the financial side of it. Um, though, of course, you, know, you do have to put that before the client. But, um, but you know, the, the client can, can air concerns or worries of a different type and you can lend a sympathetic ear and uh, possibly give some opinions on it. Um, but I, I think that question of where you cross the boundary between professional and personal advice uh, should really be one of allowing the client to invite you to cross that boundary, what, what might otherwise be a boundary. So with some clients who want to keep their family stuff completely private and separate, don't want to talk about it, um, you know, you can offer them that opportunity and they'll reject it. And, and that's obviously their right. Um, but uh, for the others, um, I think it's it's quite acceptable to let them know that you can hear more personal matters too if they wish to discuss them with you. Mm. And and one thing I thought was interesting that came out in the in the live discussion was um, one of the delegates uh, suggested, well, what if George's grandson, rather than having a drug drug habit, had uh, cancer? You know, how does that change the perhaps the the, the ethical conundrum? Um, what do you think about that, Peter? Yeah, so to me, that the question then raised is, well, why does George need to get a lot of money for the grandson's cancer? Um, because after all, we're fortunate we're in Australia where we have um, Medicare and we're, we're basically covered. There may be some fees if you want private treatment, but in terms of the medical needs, you're covered. But uh, an, another possible scenario is where you're not covered because you're wanting some highly experimental and perhaps um, uncertain treatment uh, that might be very expensive and that the government won't fund because the government perhaps on the basis of medical advice says this is not in fact an effective treatment for this condition. Uh, and again, I think you can invite the client to uh, let you know what the money is going for and, if, and you can do some research on that if you want and you can ask the question, is this really a quack treatment? Is this really fraudulent? And, of course, we've had such cases in Australia uh, over the years. Um, or is it something that does give a reasonable hope of success where other things won't? Um, and those are important distinctions in this situation. But, but I think what the person was suggesting is what if we take away the stigma of the drug addiction and make it a medical issue? I mean, does that change at all the... 
I think it brings up an advice opportunity that if it's in a medical situation, you could actually say, well, does your grand- grandson have super? Is there insurance in his super policy? There's actually some pro bono work you could do to strengthen your relationship with your original client and actually help the family out that might actually be a win-win for everyone and stop George losing assets to fund something where there might be another source. You know, you could actually guide the, the grandson to Centrelink or to NDIS or to their own uh, insurance payouts. So maybe we need to think outside the, the box. Look, uh, thanks so much uh, for, for, for Marissa and, and Peter, your, your generous, um, you know, thoughts and time. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's been a great discussion. So, um, look, I, I'll leave it at that. So, so thanks, Marissa. Thank and you. thank you, Peter. It's been an honour, Peter. Matt. Thank thanks you, Thanks also, Marissa. It's been very good to hear your views too. Thank you, thanks. Peter. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes. 